0: Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Susodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in trying to make the world a better place for us all, and specifically for better businesses, Raj Sodia.
0: Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Glad to be back with you. I can't believe 2020 is, is is ending. We're going to miss this year, aren't
1: we? Oh, we are. We are definitely going to miss this year. I can feel it in my bones. And today we have a very special guest with us, Warren Almanus, who is the co-author of a wonderful book called Accountable. Now, I will give you the subtitle in a moment only because it's interesting. It's got a different subtitle in the US than it does in the UK, which I thought was interesting. One subtitle is Saving Capitalism and the other one is uh, Saving Capitalism Through Citizen Capitalism or something like that. But Warren will, will set us straight on all of that. He's a graduate of Harvard Business School, a longtime member of the Bain Capital side of things. And most recently, he's started up. An impact investment fund at a hedge fund called Two Sigma. Welcome, Warren. Thank you, uh, Timothy and Raj. I'm very delighted to be here. Great. Well, maybe start with telling us a little bit about the genesis of the book. Um, I will preface it by saying that it's one of the best books I've read that really lays out the gap between stock ownership and the sense of ownership and how we run businesses with a long-term perspective Um, among other things uh, that was one of the things that I really loved but tell us a little bit about the genesis and how you came to be writing this book
2: well uh, my my co-author and I met at Bean Capital where we were both uh, sort of regular way not non-impact investors for for a long time Um, and um, when uh, Governor uh, Deval Patrick left the State House in Massachusetts to form really the first institutional grade social impact fund at a, at a large alternative asset manager, um, Michael and I were invited to, to join that team to help him build that, that operation. And, um, and, and as someone who was new to um, sort of capitalist reform issues, um, I set out to go read everything I could. Uh, so I read uh, Conscious Capitalism um, uh, with thanks to you, Raj. Um, I subsequently read the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide with thanks to you, uh, Timothy. Um, uh, But despite the fact that there were many interesting books out there on how to do uh, more responsible ownership, the book that didn't exist yet uh, was a book that put into context how all these different efforts at reforming capitalism fit together. So divestment, impact investing, CSR, ESG, all the various efforts that government has tried over the years and continues to try um, and, 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 even more so there weren't a lot that went straight you know, to the root cause. You know, what is it when we say capitalism needs some fixing, what exactly do we mean? And so, um, because Michael and I couldn't find that book, we decided to write, it. um, and it took us about three years, uh, and, uh, both of us have since left being capital double impact, but are both still working in impact circles. Um, but we, uh, but we're really uh, proud to have all of our thoughts in, in one place, uh, and to be able to
1: share them with, uh, with you all. I love it. So tell us, what is the answer? What's the place where it's broken and we most need to fix it?
2: Well, let me just start by saying that um, I am very much a capitalist. Uh, I'm a big believer that this system has enormous power for good. Indeed, it has created enormous good. If you look at the world economy up to 1750, for 3,000 years, GDP per capita had basically been flat. No change in standard of living. Since 1750, uh, GDP per capita has gone up by 37 times globally. and, and you know, 37 times. So all these things, you know, life expectancy, medicine, abundant food in many places, all these things that have changed that we take for granted now, uh, many of us, um, those things didn't happen by accident. They happened by capitalism. So we owe our system a lot. And just in the last 30 years alone, we've lifted a billion people worldwide out of poverty. So we should thank capitalism for its many benefits to us. At the same time, uh, capitalism as practiced in the last several decades, particularly in America and in the UK, um, has led to some, has has been really dangerously off course and and has led to some really distorted outcomes. One of the more uh, tragic figures that that we cite in the book is um, the, the life expectancy gap between two adjacent neighborhoods in Boston where Michael and I worked uh, you know, one rich, one poor is now 33 years, mm. 33 years in America in 2020. And, and by the way, Boston is a little bit of an outlier, but the, but there are similar gaps in other major cities across America. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, we talk a lot about inequality, but that is a startling uh, statistic. And, and, and a lot of that has to do with the distorted results that capitalism is currently producing. And so we spent a whole bunch of time trying to get to What's really happening here? What is it that's led to these distorted outcomes?
1: Well, I love that. And and the part that I found really interesting, and I think you and I had a brief discussion about this. You know, sometimes I get involved with employee-owned businesses, and the issue is we're not only employee-owned, we want to have a culture of ownership. And you know, a lot of corporations come and say we want to have our employees feel a sense of ownership. And that means something in terms of the culture and the words they use. But then it's fascinating because then you sort of turn towards the investment community and say, where's your sense of ownership in anything that feels like or has any sense that somebody deep inside an organization could say, oh, yeah, we have good owners. So say a little bit about that notion of ownership and the disintermediation of Of the people who are providing the capital,
2: (laughs) it's it's funny this 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 notion of ownership. I think is critical. I mean, you know, our our book rests on the on the thesis that the corporation is the single most important institution in modern society. I mean, we we tell a story of how many people interact with most of the companies in the Fortune 500, uh, most of most of the top ten companies in the Fortune 500 before they even arrive at work in the morning. and, and so the corporation, it, it is the air we breathe. It's over, you know, it's everywhere we turn. And so if you accept that that, that idea is important, and by the way, not everyone does, um, books like uh, Piketty's uh, book on, on capitalism, capitalism 21st century has more references to the French revolution than it does to corporations. So there are many books out there about capitalism that don't talk about companies, but, but our view is that companies are critical. Uh, and if you look at companies, um, the thing that's happened with companies, particularly over the last 40, 50 years, is that ownership has gotten very distant from companies. So, you know, capitalists love to talk about Adam Smith. He was writing in a world where just about every owner lived, you know, their, their company was in their local town. They lived next to their employees. They lived like next to their customers. If they polluted the local river, it was their river they were polluting. You know, they you know, folks were very close to the so-called externalities that they created. Owners of capital were close to the externalities they, they created. Today... Um, owners can be very, very distant from those things. And so the question for us, because we're not gonna return back to the land of Adam Smith in 17, you know, the 1700s, the question for us is, how do we create ownership accountability in a, in a highly disintermediated capital, uh, capital market system? And, that's a, and that is a tough problem to crack. but we believe it's the root cause of the rudderlessness, the sort of values-lessness uh, of companies these days.
1: Well, one of the things you bring up in the book that I think is a really interesting example is you contrast the ownership in a place like Germany with the Anglo-Saxon ownership in the U.S. and uh, and the U.K. And what I found fascinating was I am doing a number of interviews with boards of directors this summer over this whole issue of accountability and ownership and speaking to some people in Germany about it. They were like, well, I don't know what you mean because, you know, we're in the middle And of course the owner, the, the major stockholder, goes and has dinner at the local restaurant every week. And, you know, if they're messing up the river or messing things up, they're, they're going to hear it from their neighbors. And I thought that was a fascinating perspective versus a hedge fund on Wall Street that owns it the stock for a week.
2: Well, I, I do think that um, Germany is an interesting model for, for lots of reasons. But one of the things I love is that, you know, they incorporate worker voice very deliberately on boards, um, which is something that um, American companies don't do a great job of. And, and one of the things I find fascinating about that is you know, it, it can seem to Anglo-Saxon eyes that, you know, having board representation uh, for workers is a concession to workers, is a, sort of in some ways a form of socialism. I actually think it's a really interesting idea just from the point of view of adding a new perspective to board discussions. Um, you know, we, we uh, in, in my new business, which is a, a private investment business you know, in medium-sized companies where we where we hope to generate better jobs through better workforce practices, um, we have found that in diligence for companies, when you talk to frontline workers, you learn new things, things you don't hear in boardrooms or from CEOs. And so this notion of worker voice, I think, is actually really important. It's It's important not just for that reason, but if you actually look at the root cause of inequality, I think you'll find you know, workforce issues at that at the base. You know, one of my another sort of terrifying statistic. Between World War II and the early 70s, productivity and worker pay moved in lockstep. Since 1973, productivity has gone up by 250% and worker pay has barely budged. Um, and so we have had we've got a, we've got a, a system that increasingly does not share. The benefits of improvements in productivity with uh, with, with, its, with with workers. So you know, if you want to ask why there's lots of inequality around, maybe you could, we could start there. Uh, and I think that's I, and I think that's detrimental not just to society. I think it's detrimental to companies um, because here, here, one more stat for you: fifty percent of American workers describe themselves as disengaged, but thirteen percent—that's one in eight workers—is so disaffected by how they're treated on the job they actively work against the interests of the companies that employ them. One in eight workers, that is a huge drag on our economy and something that we would all be well-served to fix.
0: And it, you know, it's also what leads to revolutions, right? I mean, this kind of what you just pointed out, the income being flat. I mean, to me now, economic unrest, uh, you know, all the populism that we see out there is, is a far bigger factor than terrorism and, uh, you know, religious fundamentalism and all the things that we've been obsessing about for the last two decades. Meanwhile, we have this quietly growing cancer in our system, which unless we reverse it, uh, does, have, does have tremendous societal uh, consequences. And as you point out, every system is perfectly designed to generate the uh, outcomes that, uh, that we get. And, and I think us in conscious capitalism, we are more focused at the company level, not as much at the system level. I mean, there are others who are thinking about that more, I think. So the question is what kind of systemic changes do we need? And one of the big ones in that you know, the limited liability corporation, of course, is considered one of the great inventions in history. I think you have a nice quote about that. But the very idea of shielding yourself from the liability side while benefiting or gaining all the benefits on the upside, do we need to rethink that? Do we need to reconfigure how we charter corporate liability? Well, it's interesting that you asked that,
2: Raj, because one of the things that I've learned in these last few years doing the work I'm doing is um first of all the, the power of rechartering but but i've also learned that corporations when they initially were founded and they were given the the the, the, the privilege of limited liability um, you know the joint stock limited liability corporation is an invention it's not a state of nature and it and it's it is the state conferring privileges on on a group of folks to do things. But the state used to ask in return, what's the purpose of this corporation? And there was a standard there that's you know the purpose had to be something that could be, you know, ascribed to the the common good. Um, And today, it's interesting, in the Articles of Incorporation, there is still a purpose clause, but most folks write to do what is lawful in the state of Delaware or something very close to that. Um, In in other words, in the charter, there is a purpose clause, but it means nothing today. And one of the things that if you certify a corporation for, if if you go through the B scoring process and you try to certify as a B corp, they ask you, did you put your mission in your charter? Um, and uh, you, you may have seen Danone recently um, you d- did that. They described, I think it was something like to, to, to improve health through food to as many people as possible or something like that. That's a hugely clarifying thing um, to do. Uh, and, and so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in the idea of clarifying your mission, putting it in your charter and then communicating it and creating metrics and incentives around it.
1: So I couldn't agree with you more. I'm I, part of a movement here in the UK where we're trying to make the UK the most uh, friendly place or the place with the most purpose-driven businesses. And one of the discussions is exactly that. Do you need to have a purpose charter? Do you need to publish it? And then you have to update annually. How are you doing on your purpose? Now, we're not at this point saying there's any metrics, but we're saying you at least have to have a paragraph that says, <laughs> how are you doing that? And then I think to your point about certification, somebody at some point has to come along and say, on a scale of one to five, you know, you're a five on purpose, which means you're great, you're in the platinum club, or you know, you're in the tin club down here at one. You've got a purpose, but it's purpose washing. So I think that some level the solutions are not rocket science. But what's really interesting is how do you get that momentum into the marketplace? And and what do you think is the role of government? in sort of mandating that versus the market in some way demanding it and it comes from the investor side of saying these are things we want to see.
2: Well, well I think Timothy, the, 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 there is clearly a role for government. I mean, as, as, as Governor Patrick used to say, government is the things we choose to do together and I love that phrase because uh, it takes it away from this sort of this other, and and it becomes a thing that, you know, it's our collective will expressed in, through one of our institutions. You know, we can you know, express our collective will in lots of ways, but that's one way. And and one of the things I think is, you know, I think we tried very hard to steer away from partisan politics and and and, and to get too deep into policy, because the thing we know best is corporations and how they function. And so that's where we tried to stay. But I do think as we wrote the book, we realized there are certain things that corporations should fix about capitalism that are in their own enlightened self-interest. That if we could just um, get folks to kind of get away from this meat-headed short-termism that I think permeates certainly a lot of American companies, we, we would see we would that uh, corporations would become more socially responsibility for their, for their own good purposes. Um, but, uh, but if you think about kind of the things that corporations do that are harder to fix on their own, um, I always think of you know, carbon. Um, you know it, it's not really in any individual company's interest to solve the carbon problem that they're you know solve their emissions problems and I think that corp, you know government clearly could have a role for making companies pay for the messes they make you know um uh, the you know we I teach my kids you know I teach my eight year old to clean up his messes i don't know why we can't apply that standard to corporations too um now I also know that when you try to solve a big problem like that, like they did in France, you know, you run into difficulties. These aren't easy issues to fix. Um, but uh, I think the general idea that corporations should clean up after themselves is, you know, that shouldn't be a partisan idea. That should just be a common sense idea.
0: It is shocking that that's not a part of our or a system to the degree that it needs to be, right? I mean, I remember in in India, in my mother's village, my brother showed me a Google Maps image of the region surrounding that area, right? And there's this beautiful, wide blue river that flows downstream until it reaches that little town next to that village. And there's a, a textile plant there. Uh, that produces suit materials and all of those kinds of things. And then you can see, so uh, up- upstream, everything is green surrounding the river, and the river is white and blue. And then downstream, it's a, it's a black trickle, right? And everything around, all the fields are kind of barren around it, right? And the company was allowed to come in and do this, sort of destroy the lifeline that this river represents, right? And somehow we make that bargain, yeah, or whether it was corrupt, you know, the laws probably did not even exist and to the extent they existed, they were not applied. So I think there's the tragedy of the commons writ large, right? everybody, every corporation's interest is to do as much as it can and, and minimize the cost of, of alleviating those, those things. So we really do need system solutions and that's where the government, and I was talking to Paul Polman recently and he talked about, he's now doing what he, collective action, like getting a, a critical mass of CEOs from, a, from an industry together, who can then collectively commit to certain uh, standards and certain uh, uh, goals. And, and then they have, they have a, a higher level of courage, right? There's collective courage that comes when you're not the only one that's trying to do something. And you can't solve that problem on your own. But when you come together with other players in the industry and then work with the government, then I think you really start to make things, make things happen.
1: You know, it was interesting, Raj, this week Warren and I had a little email exchange. I sent him an article from the Financial Times editorial page, and he that was really saying stakeholder capitalism and taking all stakeholders is really where you have to go. And he sent me back something that was the editorial from the Wall Street Journal, which said absolutely the opposite. It said stakeholder <laughs> capitalism is a distraction. Oh, yeah. Friedman had it right, we need to go back. <laughs> Yeah, what, yeah, where the last where do you on stand on this? this? Where where do we go? <laughs> well,
2: I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, on some level, though, I don't think impact investors and, and ESG proponents have always helped themselves uh, in their in their own branding. Um, you know, I think we impact investors have become easy marks in some ways um, because um, the, 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 the the spectrum of you know, things we call impact runs from folks who are prepared to make no return or negative returns, all the way through to folks who think impact can drive alpha. It runs across every possible social issue. It runs across every. And, and I think it's, it's easy for folks on the other side to get confused. ESG metrics, you know, environmental, social, and governance metrics, are even more confusing. Um, you know, you, 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 some, some ESG um, uh, you know, standards providers directly contradict each other about which companies are the most virtuous. Um, if you look at one magazine, their top five will be totally different from another magazine. And so uh, I do think that um, on some level, we, we as, as, as the folks who, you know, me as a practitioner, we don't help ourselves by um, generating all this confusion. It, it, it then becomes fairly easy for you know, um, folks who take the Milton Friedman point of view to poke holes uh, in, 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 in the reform effort. Uh, and, and this is why I, I really believe um, that um, metrics are critical it's a, in some ways it's it's a, it's a, it's an eye roll of a topic. You know, a lot of times when you, you know, when you talk about metrics, you're not exactly getting everyone's blood you know, pumping. Um, but it is, I do think it's, it's really important. If you want to hold companies to account, even if you're a, an executive and you want to hold yourself to account, if you don't have a dashboard to look at that is reliable, uh, it's really hard to get to, to make real progress. And so I, I really hope, um, that, um, you know, all these, all these folks out there who are talking a big game, you know, the, the, the business round table says one thing and there's a Davos manifesto and there's all these different things. Um, and there's a, over a hundred trillion dollars that have signed on to the UN principles of, of responsible investment. All these things uh, that so far haven't generated much. And I really hope that as a first step, we're gonna see folks begin adopting a set of a common set of BSG standards. The, the World Economic Forum in September released with the big four accounting firms, a set of standards that could be implemented that I think are really, really encouraging. They could be implemented by large public companies. Um, And if we, if we're able to turn this sort of COVID energy, this increasing ESG awareness into real metrics, that would be a huge step forward, I think.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I just became aware last week of a company that's starting up. It's called eCountable. It's kind of the name of your book, but with an E and, um, the idea there is that they've got data on 6,000 companies on a variety of, different I think, 28 different dimensions of ESG. And, and they're now able to link that to your credit card and tell you, everything based on everything that you've bought, right, what kind of businesses you're supporting and what's the overall impact that, that your spending is having, right? positive or negative, through that. And then, of course, the next step is to say, what are your values? What do you care most about? And then we can kind of nudge you and guide you away from certain things and towards certain things. So I think these kinds of mechanisms, you know, to create a pull from the other side, from the customer, people want to do this, uh, but, but they don't know how. It's not easy to do it, right? So I think that that would be an interesting approach to try to get I, to that.
2: I love that um, because, you know, the reason why we called our book uh, accountable and then the subtitle, at least in, 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 the, uh, in the U.S., is The Rise of Citizen Capitalism, is because we think that, you know, um, there is a role for all of us to play in our various um, capacities as consumers, as you just described Raj, as investors, you know, it's is an area near and dear to my heart, um, as, as workers and also as voters. Um, you know, I think we all inhabit those roles to some degree. Um, and, um, and I think we can make a more effective use as citizens of uh, those tools. It, it was interesting, we had a conversation with one of my friends, uh, Chris Zook uh, from uh, Bain Company, when we were writing the book, and, and he was challenging us and saying, is it really in companies' best interests to do the, the right thing on a, from an ESG perspective? And the answer is maybe, sometimes. You know, he said, in, in, in the, in, you know, for Gazprom in Russia, should it really be leading on you know environmental standards? And the answer is probably not, because there's not a lot of stuff around Gazprom in, in Russia to encourage it. Um, but but that but that's decided by citizens. I and mean, here in America, we can we get to decide whether those things are rewarded or not rewarded. And so I do think it's important for all of us to you know if we can find more tools like eCountable, I think it's a wonderful wonderful thing.
0: It is interesting how we have made it acceptable, right? That yeah, you can do it, and it doesn't matter if you cause harm. That you know that 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 that's not like a choice. Like I, before this call, I was on a on a session with the Humanistic Management Association. Right? And it struck me, like, what is the opposite of that? Or why do we need a humanistic management? Why shouldn't all management, you know, be humanistic, right? It's just like we have painted ourselves into this corner where somehow this really weird, if an alien came down and looked at our mental models around these things, they said, what are you, you guys are heading straight down the, uh, you know, down the cliff here, right? Uh, it's, it's like we're blind to the consequences yeah. of what we're doing.
1: So I'm interested, Warren. As you know, pull on that string that uh, that Raj just pulled out for us. Connect your, you know, your business and how you're doing things, your book's point of view about good jobs, and this notion of inequality, and that the way we've got to try to address this inequality question is ultimately by getting more good jobs, and. Um, and and how do you tie that to some of the things that you're doing with your, your day-to-day job now in the investment world?
2: Yeah, I, so so I I must say I one of the things that's happened for me over the past few years is I've had the privilege of learning more about you know things like what you all are doing in conscious capitalism and what's happening in impact investing. And and actually I was I was heavily influenced by a book by Jed Emerson called The Purpose of Capital, which allowed me to kind of step back and say, like, what are we doing here? I mean, going back to Raj's questions, you know, what, you know, what, you know, I work in, I work in capital markets. What am I doing? What do I do each day? Really? Like, what is the net effect of the things that I do? Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's allowed, I think allowed me to kind of sort of get a, a broader perspective on the, you know, the day-to-day uh, of, you know, the daily impacts of what, I, of what I do. And one of the things I've realized is that, um, particularly in private equity, we have this huge blind spot for workers. We just, you know, we have this brand in private equity that you know, we're all about creating incentives for the top leaders and then everybody else is a cost to be reduced. And, and, and I think that um, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of myopia that comes along with that. You know, if, if someone talks about, oh, I invested in a technology or I built a factory, that's investment, but if I train a worker um, or if I, you know, if I, if I, if I invest in worker safety, Somehow that's a cost. That's just a cost, you know? Um, and so uh, I, I do think that it's, um, this, this broader perspective that's come from being, you know, being forced to think about these issues, I think has allowed, uh, allowed me and the group that I'm currently working with to see opportunity where others don't. Um, and so, um, you know, for example, um, you know, we, we, um, uh, have spent a lot of time thinking about how to fix this, this issue in America where vocational training is just broken, you know, um, uh, you know, we need a lot more middle-skilled workers. There's a lot of folks who would love to have middle-skilled jobs and middle-income wages, and yet, um, you know, our education system doesn't support that. Companies aren't good at training. Most um, training that's provided by private, you know, um, sources are, is, is really expensive and questionably effective. You know, we managed to find a great company uh, and invest you know, our first investments in a business that's doing that. Um, that's that's doing it really effectively, low cost, great jobs on the other end, and we're going to work with. Um, we're really lucky because we've got a, 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 um, a backer in Two Sigma that is all about data science. And so we can uh, actually use some of those tools to improve you know, vocational training. That's an example of the kind of work that we're doing. But we're also looking at companies um, and trying to figure out how can we make um, companies themselves just have better human capital practices, like just think more about creating career paths for workers, think more about sharing um, upside, think more about motivating with mission, think more about employee listening. Um, and I think that uh, as a result, um, we have the chance, if we do our jobs well, we have the chance to prove that investing in workers can actually be just really good business. And if we can do that, maybe we can drag my industry a little bit in this direction, which I think would be fantastic.
0: Well, there, there's a book called The Good Job Strategy. Are you familiar with uh, Zainab's work? Right? So that. Can... sure.
2: She's, a, she's been a great partner. Um, she, she also started a thing called The Good Jobs Institute. Right. which is not-for-profit that we've actually worked with a bunch. And we're a huge fans of data.
0: So, you know, one of the things that I've observed in my last book is called the healing organization, that the human cost of doing business is so extraordinary. And we don't factor that in anywhere, right? The fact that heart attacks are higher on Mondays, the fact that 600,000 Chinese die from overwork every year, or 120,000 Americans die from stress uh, connected to work. Uh, you know, that anxiety, depression, drug addiction, and suicides are on the rise. I mean, all of these things, I think, is one of the largest costs uh, that we have. And yet we don't account for that anywhere. And the fact is that if we operate in a different mode, not only do we not have to have those costs, we can eliminate or eradicate most of that suffering, and we can actually make it a place of joy and fulfillment, right? So we have the opposite effect. We don't diminish your lifespan. We actually extend it. Right? We actually make you healthier in every dimension because of the way in which we work. But I think that's, that's such a huge blind spot for me. We almost need like an audit of the suffering that we are inadvertently causing in the lives of not only those who work, but their children and their families because everybody is impacted by the way in which they're treated. Right?
2: What's funny, we, we know this. Um, you know, I didn't know the stats you just cited, but I, but I, don't, but I know the themes. The, the, the challenge we have is that the scoreboard that we all look at it doesn't include those things. You know, we look at a, G, a scoreboard that says GDP, but you know, I think we all can acknowledge there's a lot that um, you know, gets measured and not measured in GDP that doesn't make sense. We, you know, we look at a scoreboard that says you know quarterly earnings and share price, and we think that means corporate value, but we all know that it doesn't really. And we look at, you know, our own, you know, we look at, we look at our own uh, quality of life through a lens that's increasingly been monetized as well. And we don't look at these other things. And and so I do think that um, it's, it's really challenging to measure these social things, but we got to try harder um, because um, unless we have a better scoreboard, I think it's going to be really hard to make real progress.
1: Well, let me press on that a little bit because... Um because this is an issue that I find just fascinating because, so we all agree something's broken in the system, right? And I look at the great place to work Institute. And I look at the great place to work in America list that's now been out for about 25 years. And after about 10 years, they started comparing the Russell index (laughs) versus if you'd invested in these top 100 companies. And the numbers were just clearly favoring the performance of those companies uh, that were on the great place to work list. And that's been around for 20 years. And in Raja's first book, you know, Firms of Endearment, you know, there was the number, you know, like these companies perform this way because they're operating in this different model. But even just to the workplace issue, the great place to work really focuses on company and company culture. So we've known that and investors, smart investors, some like our friends at Motley Fool and others who've been investing this way have benefited hugely from it. So the data is in a sense there, and yet we're still having this conversation 20 years after the data first came out, and we're still feeling like we're pioneers in some way. What's the disconnect there, Warren? What's going on?
2: Well, I, mean, I, I uh, unfortunately I know through lived experience a little bit about what's going on because I used to be an equity analyst briefly. So most of my career has been at companies called Bain, but I did work briefly as an equity analyst covering radio stocks. And I remember um, I wanted to write a piece about how the Internet might change you know, the value of radio licenses. And my boss's response was, our investors have three to six month time horizons. They couldn't care less about that. You can't write the report. And and uh, and so I think what you know and, and you can see evidence of that short termism that was a while ago, but you can see evidence of that short termism today, you know, back when I remember when um, Home Depot back in Q1 missed its first quarter uh, profit targets because it started giving bonuses, special bonuses to its workers and it started doing some workforce safety investments. And the market punished them savagely. And if the market went back and read Zeynep Nepton's great book called The Good Job Strategy, they would know that when Home Depot tried to skimp on workers, you know, in the early 2000s under uh, under a, um, a GE a transplant who, who, who looked at the well, way no unnamed
1: at the moment, but yes, we know who you're talking about. <laughs> the company languished
2: for, you know, the stock languished for, for, for a long period of time. And so, you know, Home Depot, a company built on, you know, on, on the idea that we can actually have a better frontline workforce. We can have a better service level for, our, for customers. They invest in employees and all of a sudden they get savagely punished. And I think so. I think it's it is a shame that um, that um, you know that, that we have such short memories. But uh, but again, I think that comes down to you know where does workforce investment show up on the balance sheet? You know where where do, where where can we look on the scoreboard to find the value that gets created from that? We all know there is some value to doing things like that. How do we measure it? And, and this is and this is one things I'm really proud of is that um, in this new business that we're that we're building we've decided to focus on one issue, not many issues, you know, not, we're not trying to do, we're not trying to tackle every single ESG issue. We're trying to tackle workforce. And what we're really trying to look at is if we create good jobs inside the companies we own, you know, how are we create? what is the long-term value result of that? Because it's going to take some investment in the short term. We know that, you know, that there's, that the, um, but the question is, what is the long-term value creation associated with it? And we're going to be able to answer that question. I think more precisely, than other impact investors because we're focused on a single issue, we're going deep.
1: Uh, I I love that that you're getting to the data. You know, I'm I'm working with a client that's got a living wage initiative, they're a global firm. And um, the scores they're getting back on engagement as they're rolling it out are clearly significant. Now, if you're in the retail business and you see your engagement going up, uh, our friend Kip Hindle was on a a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, if the employees don't love the company, it's going to be really hard to get the customer to experience love for your company when they walk into your store. And, um, and that seems so obvious and straightforward. And yet we come back to, and there is some data, but not enough data. I'm wondering what's it going to take to get the wall street journal to write a different editorial that says, Oh, of course we need to focus on, the human capital side of these things because that's the engine that drives the business
2: you know i i i, I really do think the first i come back to i think the first step really is metrics I, I was i've been talking to um as part of my work i've talked to a few folks in the in the hedge fund industry in the past few few months who um and, and i asked them the question you know if you had good metrics on workforce health would that be an the investable the theme for you and yeah, these are folks who are pretty hard-nosed, you know, um, about, about their approach to kind of evaluating companies. These are really thoughtful, you know, uh, capitalist folks. And, and their answer is yes. Yeah, their answer is, if I had good metrics, that would be investable. I would invest behind workforce health. Uh, but unfortunately, not only are the metrics not good today, but if I try to, like, actually do my own research inside the companies, I, I risk tripping over regulations and all kinds of stuff. And so, um, you know, really, we're flying blind. I think someone actually said that we're flying behind on workforce issues, and so we don't know how to invest one way or the other behind it. Uh, and, and and so if we had better metrics, if there was a, an entry somewhere on the balance sheet for investment in workers, um, I do think that that um, would be at least a step. It, it would not solve everything, but it would be a step in the right direction. You
0: know, one of the things I enjoyed about your book, uh, Warren, is the, uh, is the very... It's, it's great uh, writing, which is uh, which is always fun. It's very witty, and there, there's some phrases that you've coined here. I want you to explain those to our audience. You've got the Milgram-Nixon uh, syndrome. Now we know Milgram and we know Nixon, but we don't know how they go together. So yes.
2: Yeah, so, so, so that one um, we uh, we coined based on some some ideas that we'd seen, which we footnoted in the book. But uh, but the but the idea was um, Richard Nixon's defense was. You know, I'm the president of the United States. There's a lot of stuff going on. How could I possibly know? Um, You know, how could I possibly be accountable for all the things that happen inside of my government? Um, You know, Milgram, of course, ran those experiments where um, individuals were willing to, you know, if someone in a a white lab coat told them to shock someone, um, they were willing to to, to do that in most cases, um, you know, for reasons that had to do with science. And even when the other person on the other side was, was screaming, at least they thought they were. Um, and so and, and so there the accountability is, well, someone told me to uh, someone who, in a white lab coat told me to do this. So how can I be accountable? And so we use that um, that, uh, that those sort of stories to as, as metaphors for how capitalist accountability works, which is if you're a shareholder, you say, how could I possibly know what all the companies do on my behalf? You know, I, I own all these stocks through an index fund and I have no, you know, no I have no communication with board members. How could I possibly know? And then, if you're a a manager at a corporation, you say, "My board has told me I need to maximize next quarter's profits, even when I know that maybe I'm foregoing things that are good, uh, you know, good investments. Um, I can't make those investments today in those workers because it's going to hurt next quarter's profits. And that's how I'm, you know, that's where all my incentives come from. That's what I'm told to do. So you have this world where <laughs> accountability really exists nowhere." Uh, and, 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 uh, and, uh, and so the Milgram Nixon syndrome is a way to sort of colorfully describe um, how that, you know, describe that, that idea. The thing that's interesting is I think there's an opportunity to change all of that. Um, you pri- for me in private markets, we have this incredible privilege. And I think, I think responsibility that comes with we own companies for years. You know, we own them sometimes for five, six, seven years. Um, and so we have the opportunity to invest in things that won't pay off in the first quarter or the second quarter or the third quarter. Uh, And and I was really proud of the work that we did at Bain Capital along these lines because we always asked the question, is this in the best interest, the long-term best interest of the company? That was the primary guiding star for all the things that we did. Uh, And and I say that in our our new firm, we we approach it in a similar way with of course workforce issues paramount. In in public markets, it's harder. uh, but there are groups out there, you know, my, my co-authors involved in a group called Engine Number One, that is trying to hold, you know, trying to, I think right now they're pushing for, you know, changes in, in, in board representation at some large energy firms. Um, and their idea is, we can represent you, the shareholder, better by pushing uh, more actively your values through the system, um, which I think is, you know, unless owners um, express their values better, I think it's, again, going to be really hard to make progress.
1: You speak about long-term investment perspectives, and I, and I'll play off of Raja's theme because there's another great um, phrase you use. It's called the Two Buffett Paradox. Now, Warren Buffett's got the reputation for being this long-term investor and value investor. Explain a little bit about the two Buffett paradox. Well, Warren
2: Buffett has the, has the benefit of being a really generous guy for in terms of what he's going to give when once he's once he's gone. And he's got the benefit of having a sort of grandfatherly sort of uh, image. And so I think um, most folks would say, you know, most folks, I think, um, he a bit of a pass on some stuff. Um, and, and of course, there's nothing wrong. In fact, I think mean, it should be praised, the idea of this giving pledge that he's done with Gates and others to you know, give away a, a large portion of their, of their, uh, their wealth um, upon, upon their deaths. Um, that being said... Um, you know, uh, Warren Buffett's approach to uh, accountability in his day-to-day job is quite different. In fact, he describes workers left behind as roadkill um, and, uh, and, and, and and says that, you know, that's something that government needs to you know, clean up. You know, I, I, our book, um, uh, we, we identified Warren Buffett's grandson, um, who's a professor at Columbia, who has a very different perspective on capitalism, who believes that your day job matters. You know, this idea... Um, that, you know, I'll go make money during the week and then on weekends I'll give it away. Um, you know, you know uh, Warren's grandson, William, challenges that idea and says, you know, we think that um, you know, integrating uh, your, your moral and economic lives is important. And, and, I, and I personally think this is critical. I mean, America has given, America is a generous com- company a country it gives away, you know, I think it's a couple of percent, two or three percent to charity each year, which puts it among the top, you know, countries. But if the other ninety, you know, six, seven, wherever it is percent, is pulling the other direction, no amount of philanthropy is going to lead to the outcomes that we hope to
0: see. Yeah, so it's not how you spend your money; it's how you make your money that ultimately makes the difference in the world, right? And I think that's What about these? uh, It's it's disheartening for me sometimes to see companies that go are going in the other direction, like negative progress. You know, you had values, you had purpose, you had a sense of uh, stakeholder orientation. I mean, I look at Johnson & Johnson with the credo and everything they stood for, you know, including as recently as the 80s with the, uh, the Tylenol. Uh, okay. What do you think happens there? How do companies lose their way? Even though many companies never had it, right? But others had it and then they lost it. Like what happens there?
2: Yeah, I mean, we 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 talk a lot about Johnson & Johnson in the book because I thought the, the credo was probably the one of the finest examples that we could find of a chart, a living charter, you know, a, a charter that you know, folks had to walk by it every day in the lobby. You know, their, their, their commitment to their patients first and foremost, and and the and the, and the act of walking it by um, the credo uh, in their lobby every day was at least one of the things that explained their response to the Tylenol crisis, where they immediately launched a recall, even if even though they didn't necessarily they didn't do the math on whether that was in their best interest or not, they just did it because it was the best thing for patients, and and that was a really heartening example. It was crushing for us as we did our research to learn of some things that happened later, um, uh, because um, you know it, that was such a, a, an encouraging story. Um, but I, I will tell you that what we learned from all of that was a credo chiseled into a lobby is great, a mission put into a charter is great, but unless you're doing things to actively support it, it's I, you know it, it won't live the way it can. And and I think the leadership of Johnson & Johnson leading up to Tylenol, they, they used to do things called the Credo Challenge, and they get all the executives together and talk about their interpretations. Of, this was not a thing that was just to the a wall. It was part of the culture of the company. And so while I think um, missions and charters and credos are valuable, they're only valuable if they're taken seriously and used as tools inside of an organization.
1: Well, I love that because I think that comes back to one of the issues we've got with conscious capitalism is that it's about conscious leadership. You know, an organization can't be more conscious than the level of consciousness of its leaders. And I think in the J and J example in your book, you give an example of someone who makes a decision under one leadership uh, regime, and then later is in a very senior level and makes a different set of, um, of decisions. Um, so the leadership matters and, and, on that note, I'm, I'm curious, your leadership journey personally, like Warren, what got you to care about these issues the way you do? Because clearly you're passionate about it and you're an effective advocate for it. What's your, what's your story? How did you get here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I I'd love to say that I always care about these issues in the same way, and that just isn't true. I, I actually came out of um, you know I came out of college with a lot of college dad. I've been schooled in it in what I thought Adam's what was Adam Smith, and I had this perspective that was convenient for me um, at that time. That you know if, if if I do my sort of role in capitalism you know, narrowly defined, um, you know then I'll make money, and that'll be good for that'll be good for the world in some way. I don't need to think about that too much. Um, and um, gradually, I began to lose my faith in that. Um, but uh, that took a while. Um, it you know didn't happen at business school. You know when I went to HBS Harvard Business School, uh, you know most of the sort of moral and ethical training there was related to things like you know, try to avoid going to jail. Um, you know here's here's a few tips on that. Uh, there wasn't a lot. I know that I know that Harvard changed a lot in the last few years on that dimension. Um, you know Rebecca Henderson. You know we're huge admirers of her and others there and the work that they're doing. Um, but, um, but I would say that that is, you know, I think, I think, you know, Harvard's evolved, I've evolved too. Um, and, uh, and, and, and in truth, the, the um, experience of joining Governor Patrick in being capital double impact was really a watershed. I did that mostly because I admired him and I, and I liked business building um, and, um, but it, cha- but it really did change my perspective on these issues dramatically. And, and I was lucky that, um, that Raj came to one of our early lunches. And I got to hear about conscious capitalism, and I got to challenge Raj on some on, on some stuff, and hear you know the thought the well thought out answers that I, that really um, have, you know cemented the new path for me. So I'm grateful to uh, I'm really grateful to to both of you, um, and, and in particular to Governor Patrick for helping me to to, to steer me in, in, in this new direction.
1: I love it. Well, Warren, thank you so much for your time and attention today. I think your book Accountable is a great book. It's well written. You can read more about the two Buffett paradox and lots of other good things there. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Timothy. Thank you, Raj. and uh, It was a real pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, on whatever channel you're listening to, there's a subscribe button. Feel free to press that and subscribe to this. And if you'd like, come to our website, theconsciouscapitalists.com. And there's a place there where you can leave a comment. If you want to hear more about Conscious Capitalism, Raj, where should they go?
0: Consciouscapitalism.org is where you find out more about uh, the movement and uh, find a chapter near you and become part of this uh, unfolding of uh, of business towards a higher plane.
1: Well, thank you, Raj. Thank you, Warren. And uh, listeners, we'll see you next week.